My name is Cam Lloyd, if I haven't had the privilege of meeting you yet. Um, I'm the kids pastor here at Alliance, and while you're getting settled, I want to invite you. Um, take out a Bible, it doesn't matter what kind of Bible, on your iPad, phone, um, or a physical copy. Won't you turn with me to Psalm 78. Um, I'll be honest with you, I'm a bit heavy-hearted, and so I am going to, I'm going to read the text, and I would like us to pray one more time, just to ask for God's favor on us. Um, as we come to his word. So Psalm 78, if you're there, I want to begin in verse 1, which says, A masculine of Asaph, give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old, things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, but tell to the coming generations the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach to their children that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children so that they should set their hope in God. And not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments, that they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. A word of prayer. King Jesus, I ask you to help me. Help me to teach your word with confidence. Holy Spirit, guide us as we walk through this text. Would you illuminate the truths that you have put here for us? Thankful for the gospel. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, I was 21 years old. I was fresh out of Bible school. I was squeaky clean. I was uh, ready for ministry. And I found myself in a stinky, smelly, gasoline-ridden, B.O. smelling truck. I, uh, my first ministry appointment was a landscape crew. It's not the context that I had envisioned myself being in, and, and yet I was there, weed eater in hand. And uh, I know that the Lord had a purpose for me there. I, I learned how to do ministry. I learned how to evangelize, and I, I knew he had a purpose. Um, but I'll be honest with you, you spend a lot of time being in landscaping, you spend a lot of time in your own head, and to keep myself from going totally insane, um, I'm thankful to the grace of the Lord that he gave me podcasts. I don't know if you're a podcaster, I don't know if you listen to things, some of you true crime people, maybe you listen to sermons, but I didn't listen to any of that stuff until then, and so I, I found myself day in and day out listening to the latest sermons of my favorite preachers, I listened to uh, news updates, I listened to audiobooks, which high school Cameron would have punched myself in the face for listening to a book. That sounds super lame. Um, and yet, I found myself doing that. Um, but to be honest with you there, I, there's only so much information you can really take in. Um, and it was in that point that I discovered for the first time, never heard of the, these two guys that I'm going to mention, but I discovered for the first time stories, specifically stories written by Paul Harvey, and a guy who writes in a similar fashion, whom you guys might know from the TV show Dirty Jobs, Mike Rowe. 
both shows uh, I found on a podcast platform, and they were short, but they told stories that gripped my attention. They, I, had, I was on the edge of my seat every single time I listened to them. Now, what's characteristic about Paul Harvey and Mike Rowe's stories is that they're semi-mysteries. Like, as you are listening to the story, you, you don't really know who you're, who you're hearing about or what, what piece of object or uh, historical fact you're about to learn, but you're getting all of these small details about either someone famous or something famous in our culture. And you're obtaining all of these things, but you don't know until the very last minute who it's about. So one of my favorite Paul Harvey stories about Albert Einstein, the listener the entire time only knows this character is Al. And it's at that last minute, you know, it's Albert Einstein. And then as soon as you find out, you're like bid a farewell with those catchy catchphrases. Micro had one that is lesser known and he would, he would always say, and that's the way I heard it. And many of you in this room will remember Paul Harvey's, which was, does anyone remember? And that's the rest of the story. That's right. Both of them had, had that baritone voice that really captured you. And when I discovered these gems, I, I, in the truest sense, I binged to listen to them. I, I had a 55-minute drive from my house to Lake Norman every morning and every evening. And I would listen to them. There would be times that I would get to work and I would clock in minutes later than I could have because I was glued to my chair waiting for Paul Harvey or Micro to say the name and the catchphrase. It's because those stories were powerful in my life. Stories are powerful. Stories draw us in. They teach us something. They teach us lessons about life and they inspire us to live lives better than we want to live. Stories are powerful. This summer we had an opportunity um, as a kids' ministry to host an event called S'mores and Stories. It was a little campfire gig that we did. And I had such a blast sitting there listening to stories. I'm not sure if any of them were necessarily true. But it was awesome watching kids engage in something that wasn't a screen for a change. They sat and they listened. I love hearing stories about the ragman and old three toes. I, I was pulled in. Those stories kept me on the edge of my seat. And to be honest with you, I think right now in our day and age, storytelling is, is kind of a dying art, especially telling stories for a kid. Being in kids' ministry, I re- realized the, the necessity of learning how to tell a story. And it's, and it's a shame that it's a dying art. Not many of us think that we either can tell stories, or even know a good story to tell. But I want to tell you that we have great stories. We have great stories. The stories in the history of God's people are awesome. They, they have it all. If you go into the Word of God, you'll see stories about not only kings, but giants. Stories of true love and epic failures of epic proportions. But it's not only that we have great stories, but it's with the message within the stories that make it so great. See, we have a gospel. We have good news. We have a story that tells of God's sovereign authority 
over all things. In that same story, you have man's great rejection of that sovereign authority. But where the story gets really, really good is how God responds to that great rejection. He responds to man's great sin by offering his son as a perpetuation, a punishment taker in our place. that, That salvation is brought to us only if we repent and believe through faith. Stories are important. The message within those stories is even more so. So this morning, the thrust of our text is that we, the church, listen. Asaph says, give ear. We listen and we do not neglect the message within these stories of God's glorious works and deeds among his people. Not only to ourselves, but to the next generation. The church must teach our children to hope in God. Teach them to hope. Specifically, teach them to hope rightly. Now, going into the Psalms, we must understand a little bit about what they are. They're not like normal narratives or an epistle. Psalms are poems, and they're meant to be sung. Essentially, the the Psalter, all 150 Psalms, are the hymn book of the people of God. They take the themes of the Old Testament, and they turn it into songs. They connect truth to our hearts. It's important to note that not all psalms are the same. You have psalms of thanksgiving. You have psalms of praise. You even have psalms of lament. In our psalm in particular, you have historical psalms. Historical psalms recount God's dealings with his people in a distilled poetic theme. So something important to remember about historical uh, psalms is that they're generally not just for the individual that's singing them. It's for the congregation. That's important for us to hold on to later. Now, this psalm is reminiscent of Stephen's sermon in Acts 7. Do you guys remember Stephen's sermon? He goes through the history of Israel. And from there, we know that that was a catalyst that, it, that sent the expansion of the church among the Gentiles. There's power in recalling the stories of old. We're to remember who God is and what he has done. This past spring, I had the privilege of taking three months and going through uh, over and over and over again all 150 psalms. And one thing that I noticed that I didn't see before is that those psalms are purposefully orchestrated for reason. There's five books that make up the Psalter, and and they're telling a story. They're they're showing us something. If only we just read them one after another. And right smack dab in the middle, if you're really good at math, is the third book. And in the middle of that book, we have our psalm in particular. But something interesting to remember as we're going into this particular psalm is that book two ends with Psalm 72. And if you read that psalm, it's optimistic. It's the height of the royal theology within God's people. Psalm 73, it takes a turn. Actually, book three of the psalms is the bleakest of all the psalms. And thankfully, it's the shortest. But if you notice... As you go through book 3, if you go through 70 verse, or, or, chapter 72, 73, verse 89, you'll see these sharp rays of hope piercing through the darkness. And Psalm 78 happens to have some of the most sharpest of rays of hope. It's a psalm that recalls the messiness of Israel. 
It recalls all of their sins, all of their unfaithfulness to God. I mean, it's got it all, too. It goes from the, the Exodus account all the way to the Samuels. And this is Asaph's point. This history is important. This history is so important. Do not hide it from your children. Do not hide it from yourself. Continue to tell them so that their hope is rightly placed into the right person and that they're obedient to him. In other words, if you remember all those bad stories, all the bad things that you did, don't keep them from your kids. Tell them so that they learn. Tell them so they don't forget. It's there that you find the richness of God in his character. A friend of mine who's actually preaching a portion of this very text this morning reminded me of something that's really helpful here. It's not that Israel forgot. It's, I remember. Oh, man, that was a good story. I forgot about that one. It's not that. It's that they were prone to wander away and distrust God. And that's the point. Tell them so they do not distrust. Tell them so that they put their trust not in themselves, but into God. Tell our children. It's important. Something's at stake if we do not do this. And this is why Asaph says, give ear. Listen up. There's something important in the verses to follow. This just happens to be one of the longest psalms. And we're only going to dive in to the first eight verses. I'd encourage you to go back and read this historical account from the Exodus to the Samuels. It kind of goes in, a different, in different orders, but... Here I want to touch on specifically the command that we see here, the substance of that command, and the reason why we are commanded in the first place. So if you're taking notes, this is my simple outline for us. We must teach. What must we teach? And why must we teach it? So we must teach. That's the command. We see in verse 8, it tells us, tell to the coming generation. In verse 5, it says, teach to the children. We are to tell and we are to teach. Asaph says to his present audience, listen to me. To my present audience, I want you to recall the past generations. Do not forget it. Teach the children. Because God's redemptive plan is important for you. And just like you and me, if you look into the verse, he says, Tell it to the children that are unborn. This is our story. I don't know if you heard the cheesy line before, but history is his story, right? And it's because his story is pointing to him. We, as God's covenant people, brought in by the blood of Christ, are grafted in. And so this is our story. We are to not just read this and think that that's a great idea. Tell the kids but we're actually to be obedient to that. It's important. And isn't that what we want? Don't we want to teach our kids the word of God? Should we want our kids to trust and love God? God has given us his word. His desire is for us to not withhold his word, but to give it. And not just give it, but give it abundantly. And this is in step with the same command that we see in Deuteronomy 6, which says in verse 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. 
You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. And you shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be on the frontlets of, uh, between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house in your gates. In other words, you should give the word at all times. The word should be constantly coming from your mouth to your children. But the question that we want to ask is, who exactly is this command for? Who is it? Is it the church or is it the parent? Early this year, a study was published that centered on the long-term effects of children's ministry on adult followers of Christ. One question that was asked among, among church leaders and congregants was where the primary source of children's discipleship should take place. And the results were staggering. When church leaders, and that's pastors, church directors, even volunteers, when they were asked, a staggering 95% said that discipleship happens in the home. When parents of children ages 5 to 14 were asked, 49 said the home. It appears that church leaders know exactly where it should be, and they say the home. They're very sure of it. And on the other hand, you have parents who it's more of a toss-up. Regardless, wherever you land on that pole, the reasons for the distance and the division is fair. Church leaders, they have the resources, but they recognize that they don't have enough time. While parents who have the majority of the time feel ill-equipped to disciple their own kids. So what's the answer? Where do we go? Where do we go from here? What's the answer found in this text? And clearly it's both the church and the home. Specifically for the church, you see in verse 1, give ear, O my people. And I mentioned earlier that a historical psalm is primarily to a congregation, to a multitude of people. It's to everybody. Give ear, O my people. The command is for the church. We've been grafted in. Remember, the church is not just a place where we gather on program days, like Sunday morning and Wednesday night. That's not it. We've been preached this over and over. The church is the united body of Christ under his blood, right? And we're centered on the word of God. We're called We're called and we're instructed and we're commanded by the text to exhort the word, not only to ourselves, but to our children. It's the church. This is why that during Christmas time and Mother's Day, that we bring up the the cute little babies and we dedicate them before the church. And it's also why that we not only give a charge to the parents, but we also give a charge to the church. We ask them to commit themselves, we ask you to commit yourselves to discipling these kids. Whether we see it or not, the command is clear. The faith family has been covenanted together and we have a responsibility towards the the children and the youth of our church. And something that breaks my heart Something that breaks my heart is that there's a growing plague within the American church that's happened for decades. And it's that we can think that we can just love our kids and we can teach them and we can care for them. But we shouldn't be expected 
to care for anybody else's. It's a consumer mentality of church. It's a tragedy. Church, we are called to look different than the world. Last week, we heard that the church is supposed to live counter to culture. And it is counter to culture that we live our lives in such a way that others are counted more important than ourselves. Here at Alliance, we say this all the time in our children's ministry. We say that our children's ministry exists to partner with parents to grow fully devoted followers of Christ. It's a partnership. It's not you and we'll pray for you. It's a partnership. Don't think that Saturdays or Sundays and Wednesdays, our programs are just centered merely for our teenagers and our infants. These programs are for our church to take ownership and to be obedient. It's not just for the kids. It's for you. It's for me. It's a partnership that we come alongside parents to disciple their kids because we know biblically that they are the primary disciples. You as a parent, you are a primary disciple maker in your kid's life. Remember I said it was both. Parents, you are called to be a steward to your children. And you're you're called to not only steward them, but to steward them well. They're not only your babies, they're your first disciples. We know from Christ's own example in John 17, when he is praying to the Father, he's talking about the stewardship that he had of his own disciples. And we know by that example, we are called to not only steward other people, disciples, but we're called to disciple every, or called to steward all of our disciples. That begins with our kids. Now, I want to acknowledge that that task is not an easy one for parents. It's not. I recognize that in my own life. None of us in this room would say that we have perfectly discipled our kids. That those who have been entrusted with us, we've done everything that we possibly can. I can't say that. But it's a task nonetheless. And parents, there are many in this church that absolutely love your children. They love your children. Week in and week out, they show up and they give to your kids freely and abundantly the gospel. They teach them the word of God. But I want you to understand that it's not the Sunday school teacher. It's not the Christian baseball coach that will have to give an account for your children. You will give an account for your children. And in this text, we know especially fathers. It says in verse 5, He commanded our fathers to teach to their children. I want you to know that this week, this text has ruined me. From spending time studying this, I came home early this week, and I sat on the front porch of our house. My wife and my daughter were outside, and I just apologized, confessed, that I have not been leading well in this area. This ruined me. Husbands, fathers, I want to encourage you to see 
the command that is in the word of God to teach your kids. See the opportunity that's in your home. I want to challenge you that if family worship is not regularly happening within your home to begin leading it now. And I'm not talking about matters of personality or intellect, saying, I, know, I don't know this and I don't know that. I don't know how to do this. I'm talking about being obedient to the task that is before us in teaching the word, not just to our sons, dads, but to our ch- all of our children. Parents, we will not give an account for whether or not we taught our kids how to swing a bat properly or how to kick a ball. We will not give an account for teaching them how to dress this way or how to dress that way or giving them the opportunities to be abundant in their social experience or their academics. We will not give an account of, for whether or not we've taught them how to get good grades and go to this school so that they can get this degree, so that they can get this successful job. We will give an account for whether or not we've brought them to God. We will give them an account if we've told them about Jesus. And I want to be sensitive that I know, I know that we are tired. And I know that we can't always make it to the table. I know that there are things happening in our lives that prevent us from doing the things that we actually want to do. Our hearts long to do it. But I'm not talking about a matter of time. I'm talking a matter of prioritizing. Prioritize when and how you bring your children to Jesus while you still have time to do it. Many of you will remember that in 2003, NASA launched a space expedition called the Columbia. It was a shuttle that was sent up into orbit, and on board was a man named Colonel Rick Husband. Rick was married, and he had two kids. And he was also an evangelical Christian and a dedicated church member of Grace Community Church in Houston, Texas. Now, Rich, he was assigned to command the Columbia shuttle. And he was assigned to do that for 18 days. And prior to the mission, he recorded 36 family devotions. 18 for his son and 18 for his daughter. And the reason was that Rick didn't want to miss out on family worship while he was gone for those eight days. But Rick wouldn't come home. Because on February 1st, 2003, at 8.59 a.m., upon re-entry into Earth's atmosphere, the Columbia burst into flames, and it killed all seven of its passengers. In a video that was played at Rick's memorial service, he said this, If I ended up at the end of my life having been an astronaut, but having but having sacrificed my family along the way or living my life in a way that didn't glorify God, then I would look back on it with great regret. Having become an astronaut would not really have mattered at all. I finally came to realize that what really meant the most to me was to try to live my life the way God wanted me to and to try and be a good husband to Evelyn and to be a good father to my children. Church, that is a sobering reality. In a world that makes us more comfortable with being more distracted and more distant from our children, may we reorient our lives in such a way that we are raising and training up our children to know and love God. 
May this be a priority in our life, an utmost priority, second only to our worship of God. Because we have a message worthy of telling. So what will will we teach? What must we teach? Paul Harvey, he used to say, I want to tell a story that Aunt Betty would want to hear. I don't know if he had an Aunt Betty, and I'm not sure if she actually listened to his stories, but I know that regardless, our stories are worth telling. They are. They're worth telling. It says in verse 2, I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings. Literally there, I will say riddles. I'll utter dark sayings from old, things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. Asaph purposefully calls these stories parables and riddles. And the Hebrew word here is mashal. And we know if you actually go to Matthew chapter 13, Jesus himself, he actually goes to Psalm 78 and says, and he uses to teach his parables and explain what they are. He uses this psalm and says, actually, this is fulfilled in me. So we know what Jesus' parables were for. If you're a college student, your ears should be perking up. Jesus' parables were to tell us about the kingdom. So what is a parable? A parable is a story that is laid alongside something else to kind of help exemplify that truth. And so what Asaph is getting at here, most likely, is that his audience must recall what happened in the past because God also deals the same way what he did in the past with the future. The way that God deals with sinners sinners and repenters in the past is the way that he's going to deal with them in the future. And that's the point. We want to show our children who God is, who he really, really is. It says in verse 4, We will not hide them from our children, but tell uh, to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord in his mind and the wonders that he has done. Tell your children who God really is and how he really deals with his people. We don't have time to go through all 72 verses of this psalm, but I want to give you one small snippet that seems to be the theme of how God deals with his people in the past. It says in verse 17, Yet they sin still more against him, rebelling against the Most High in the desert. They tested God in their heart by demanding the, the food they craved. They spoke against God, saying, Can God spread a table in the wilderness? He struck the rock so that the water gushed out and streams overflowed. Can he also give bread or provide meat for his people? Therefore, when the Lord heard, he was full of wrath and a fire was kindling against Jacob. His anger rose against Israel because they did not believe in God and did not trust in his saving power. Yet he commanded the skies above and opened the doors of heaven and rained down on them manna to eat and gave them grain of heaven And man ate of the bread of the angels, and he sent them food in abundance. Brothers and sisters, know how God deals with his people. See how he actually responds. In man's unfaithfulness and in their failures, God responds with forgiveness and faithfulness. Maybe this sermon has just been one big Sermon of telling you how you failed as a parent. Maybe you're in this room and you don't have kids and you must think that this applies to somebody else and yet you've been struggling with a particular sin in your life. Maybe you're not even a Christian at all and you've come through the doors and you're interested in the church but you really don't know what this whole Bible thing and church thing is about. 
Brothers and sisters, I want to tell you, God response towards you and your sin and your failures that make you feel rotten to the core, his response to you is his son. It's his son he offers him to you. And if you're sitting there and you are his, if you are his, he says, Jesus says, I will not cast you out. That is the very heart of Christ. Christ reaches down, looks at our failures, and he offers forgiveness. We must teach this. We must teach the glories that are in this message, not only to ourselves daily, but to our children. Because I'll tell you this, in teaching your kids from a guilty heart, it's not going to happen. But one that understands grace, that's how we will teach our kids. Effectively and with passion. So why? Why will we teach our kids? Verse 6 gives us a clear answer. That the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children. So that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. There's three things here. For them to know God, for them to set their hope in God, and for them to keep his commandments. The three values of our children's ministry are that. We say at Alliance that we want to teach our kids that they can know God deeply, love Jesus passionately, and learn to live missionally. And we didn't just make that up. It's right here in the text. We don't want our kids to just simply know the Word of God. We want our children to know God deeply. Knowledge is a good thing. That's why we tell the stories. That's why we catechize our kids every Sunday morning with a question and an answer. We want them to know things. But the point is, we don't want them just to know it. We want to get to their hearts. It is what they know that connects to their heart that will eventually affect what their mouths say and what they do. The head to the heart and to the mouth. Verse 7 says, for them to set their hopes in God. Hope is is not just a knowing thing. It's a heart thing. It's motivated by the heart. We must have both knowledge and heart. And if you leave out knowledge, if you leave out the knowledge, or sorry, if you leave out emotion, you just get emotionalism and knowledge, and it just doesn't work. You need both. That's why it's important that we sing what we know. That's why it's important that we sing the truths. I mean, today, have we noticed the modern worship song is so self-centered? All of this I and me this. That's why Asaph is recording this into a poem. He wants us to sing it. And yet our songs, not specifically here, because Hunter does a really good job at singing, helping us to sing truth. But our modern worship day song is centered on us. I'm going to sing in the shadow of the storm. You're going to hear my praises ring louder and louder. But what if you don't feel like singing? Sing a little louder. No! He just told me I'm a lousy parent. Sing a little louder. Don't tell me how I'm supposed to feel. Tell me what I can know. Allow me to sing what I can know. Can I sing something substantive? 
How deep, how wide, how vast, how high is the infinite love of Christ. How strong, how sure, how sufficient, how secure is the infinite love of Christ. Now that's a worship song. And that song was written for kids. I'm not talking about contemporary versus him or simple versus deep. I'm talking about truth. May we sing truth. May we know what we can believe and believe it with passion. Don't leave out the hope and don't leave out the knowing who our hope should be in. If you're a teenager in this room and you're listening to all of this, if you think that sounds pretty great and all, to know God, to love God, doesn't sound as adventurous as I would like for it to be. Look at the warning in verse 8. We do this so that they will not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. The one that puts their hope in God, listen, the one that puts their hope or does not put their hope in God is one that will put it in themselves. And that is not a place that you want to be. That decision has eternal ramifications. Remember God. Remember the stories. Tell them the stories. Now, by way of conclusion, I'm done. Where do we go from here? What do we do for our children as we move through these doors? And I want to specifically instruct the families of our group right now. Families, I want to encourage you to institute regular rhythms of family worship in your homes. If you don't know what to do, at dinner time, open the word, read a passage of scripture, ask good questions. What does it say about God? What does it say about man? What does this tell us that we need to repent of? What is, how's this, how do we see the gospel here? And then pray the text back to God. If you're a young parent in this room, if you have small kids, I want to recommend to you a resource. We actually have it out there on our parent resource shelf, which is for you. All of those things are for you. Don't leave not resource. I want to recommend this to you. This is called Cornerstones. It's 200 questions and answers to teach your, to teach your kids truth. It gives you memory verses. If you're in this room and you grew up doing catechisms and you're wanting to gag right now, please don't. This is so good. Teach these to your kids. These are free. We'll probably run out. But if you go out today, grab one of these. If you have young, young kids, you can grab, in addition to this book, cards, flashcards. Kids in this room, don't gag either. Flashcards are good. But that's for you. Leave here equipped. Leave here equipped to, to bring family worship into your home. If you're in this church, you've heard that the command is for you too. So what must we do? And a true application of this text might mean that you get in front of some kids. It might mean that you join the student ministry team and lead a small group of knucklehead teenagers. It might mean that you join our Kids Alliance team and dance around like a crazy person and show kids that you can smile worship the Lord too. It also might mean that you take a baby, a screaming baby from a tired mom, and you pick up where she left off in praying for that child. I want to be sensitive to those in the room that are childless. College students, if you're in this room, you're childless because the Lord hasn't brought that to you yet, if he, ha if he will at all. Husbands and wives that are in this room, as you're listening to this, your heart aches 
It longs, you long to hold a child of your own. Maybe you do have children. Your, your house is a little bit quieter than it used to be. Can I encourage you and ask you to pray for, for God to give you the courage and the confidence to see the opportunities that are within this church to teach the kids. May the Lord grant us favor. May he grant us favor and give us wisdom and how to do this. Let's go to the word in prayer. Lord in prayer. God, thank you for your word. Would you help us? Would you show us the command in Scripture and Holy Spirit, would you convict our hearts to do something about it? Would you convict us to see the kids in our church as not things or people to be distant from and distracted from, but for show us that they are a mission field, a population of people that need the gospel most in this church. God, would you help us accomplish this tall task of discipling our kids? Give us strength to do it. Help us to prioritize it in our homes. Give us an endurance to regularly institute this in our own homes. Beginning with me, I felt convicted this, this week about not doing this. And yet, Lord, you give us grace. You give us grace that motivates us to do these things. We love you, Jesus. It is in your name we do pray these things. Amen.